Well, Biltmore Church, it's so good to see you guys today. How's everybody doing? Yeah, great. Hey, uh, my name is Jason Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Biltmore Church. I just wanna thank you guys for joining us uh, in person uh, or if you're joining us online, a special shout out to Care, uh, Kevin and Aaron uh, in Atlanta, Georgia today. We're glad that you guys uh, have joined us. Can I just be honest with you today? Uh, it has been a week for me. You guys ever had one of those weeks where you just like, you get to the end of the week and you're like, I don't know that I'm gonna be able to stand on my own two feet by the time that this week is done. Has anybody ever been there in your entire life? Anybody? Okay, uh, that was me. Uh, my truck broke down. Uh, our kids team is hard at work, busy, hard at work, trying to get things ready for Adventure Week, by the way. You guys need to make sure that you get your kids signed up for Adventure Week. Uh, I go back to Raleigh this past week uh, to be with my family. My wife goes into work. Uh, I get a phone call, bawling in tears. I'm like, sweetheart, what's wrong? And uh, come to find out, she's got a big toe. She's got another toe. And then the, the third toe is kind of pointing sideways like that. I'm like, oh, that's not good. That thing is broke. We got to get you somewhere quick. And, uh, and then the moving truck came just unexpectedly, like, hey, it's time to roll. And you're like, why not? And all of that while trying to plan a sermon. God is good, right? Now, if you've ever been in the process of moving, whether it be recently, you know that moving is the spawn of Satan, okay? Uh, it comes from the devil himself. And, uh, and the reason is because um, you, you basically, if you're anything like me, you have to go from being somewhat like you feel by the end of it, like, it, like you're on an episode of Hoarders to being like one of uh, like Marie Kondo's like little like disciples, okay? Because you're, you're trying to get rid of all of your junk, right? And you never realize how much junk you have until you start to purge it right? And especially in the garage. The garage is the worst. You're like, I haven't used that can of spray paint in 17 years, but I might. I might use it, right? And so the challenge, the challenge is, is going through the boxes, getting rid of stuff, and, and, and really like what, what's determined on a successful move is how much stuff you can actually get rid of, whether just putting it out for free on your like little Facebook group in your neighborhood, hey, come pick it up, I, I don't like this anymore, taking it to Goodwill or selling it on Facebook Marketplace. You're like, come and get it, I, I don't want it. Now, where I found myself a week and a half ago was going through my garage, I, I came up to a container. And as I, as I opened up that container, like my, my heart just came alive. I went down memory lane. You, you ever been like that when you're moving, you're up in the attic, you're in the garage or, or whatever. And I opened up this box and what should have been a two and a half minute job turned into an hour and a half. Because what I found when I opened up that box was a box chock full of Sports Illustrated magazines from the early 90s. And I, you know, I'm not a hoarder, but I do hold on to things that I think will have value one day, one day, all right? And there's nothing greater than a stack of Sports Illustrated from the 90s, okay? And so as I, as I start going through the Sports Illustrated, I, I start going through these and I start walking down memory lane. I'm like, oh man, I, I, re, I remember this. I, I did not grow up a Carolina fan. And so I actually, I actually hated this moment when Eric Montross shooting over, uh, shooting over Michigan. This is the game when Chris Weber called the timeout that he didn't have. Now I realize there's a lot of you in this room or online that weren't even born in 1993, okay? But this is one of the most infamous moments in NCAA championship history. Chris Weber called a timeout and he didn't have it and it cost them the opportunity to win the game. 
Totally cost him. Now, Chris Webber would go on to be a Naismith College Basketball Hall of Fame candidate, but nobody remembers Chris Webber as that guy. They remember him as the guy that called timeout and blew Michigan's chance at winning a championship. There's also this one right here. When Michael Jordan comes back from retirement, I'm back right there. And he's not even wearing 23. He's wearing number 45. You guys remember when he retired? He went to go attempt to play baseball. And then he came back to basketball afterwards because why? He was a terrible baseball player. I don't care what anybody says. Michael Jordan's baseball swing was atrocious. It was awful, okay? Absolutely awful. And then, look, and then there's Mike Tyson biting off the ear of Evander Holyfield. Now, if you grew up and you were watching boxing, watching two grown men beat the living tar out of one another, you were expecting a great fight. And what you got was sanity, like insanity on TV at that moment. Mike Tyson will always be remembered as the guy that bit off somebody's ear, not once, but twice. Uh, most of you guys won't remember this, but I'm a diehard baseball guy. Joe Carter, game six of the, uh, of the World Series, the 2-2 count with two outs, hits a three-run home run to help the Toronto Blue Jays win the World Series at the very last moment. Joe Carter's career, pretty good. The only thing he'll be remembered by is this headline, Oh Happy Jays, when he hit a donkey to win the World Series, all right? And then there's, there's Cal Ripken Jr., okay? Cal Ripken Jr., 2,631 consecutive games to hold the record for the most consecutive games played. Why is this important for you? You're like, I don't really care about Cal Ripken Jr., okay? Cal Ripken Jr. started and played in every game from May 30th, 1982 until September 19th, 1998. Every single game he played in. Y'all, I tweak my back picking up shampoo in the shower backing the truck out of the driveway. Like if I turn too quickly, I will be out for a week. This guy played baseball from 1982 into 1998 every single day. And then there's the legend. The day the legend died, Dale Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt turned four. I, I taught my kids how to count when they were like, kid, like little babies. I taught them to count one, two, Dale four, okay? Because I wanted them to remember the legend right there, okay, Dale Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt died. I, I was sitting in a Bojangles in Kinston, North Carolina, my freshman year in college, when, I, when it came up on the TV. I was eating a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit at Bojangles. God's favorite bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit comes from Bojangles, okay? And I remember hearing the news because I was watching the race and I went to go eat lunch. And I remember hearing the news that Dale Earnhardt died and I cried. I'm a, I, was a grown, I was not really a grown man, but I was a growing man at that point, And I cried because Dale Earnhardt had passed away. The legend had died. Headlines. Headlines that will shape a lot of people's lives. There is a headline in your life today that is being rung true about you. There is a storyline that's being written about you. What will the headline of your life be when it's all said and done? What will be true about you long after you're gone when people are still talking about your life? How will they remember you? How will your life be defined? The people of Israel had an opportunity to rewrite their storyline because the people of Israel, now, if you know anything about the people of Israel, you know that the people of Israel were a people that were a little bit jacked up, right? They were a little bit, they were a little wonky, if you will, okay? And, and what you find about the people of Israel is that over and over and over and over and over again, all throughout 
their history, they have an opportunity to rewrite their story, yet over and over and over and over and over again, they fail to do so. Today, we're continuing our series in the year of the Bible, and we are coming into the book of Malachi. We're in the Minor Prophets, okay? We're coming up to the book of Malachi. And what you find is that though the people of Israel constantly change, they constantly go from the mountaintop to the valley. They constantly go from being a people that love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? To being, God, we can't see you. We don't know where you are. Our rebellious hearts have turned hardened and we want nothing to do with you. Yet as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, though the people changed, there's one thing that never happens with God. He has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And today we're going to see that unfold in the book of Malachi. Now, if you're having trouble finding the book of Malachi, it's probably a lot easier for you to just go to the book of Matthew and hang a left, okay? Go to the book of Matthew, hang a left. Last book in the New Testament, all right? And Malachi, all right, the last book in the Old Testament is really a summation, if you will, of the entire Old Testament. You, you literally, in four chapters, 55 verses, you get a rundown all right, on the, the storyline of the people of God and the heart of God towards his people, people. Now, Malachi is not a minor prophet because it's less important or because he's like a Zacchaeus. He's not like a wee little man, okay? That's not like why Malachi is considered a minor prophet. It's considered a minor prophet basically just because of its length. Four chapters, 55 verses. But the book of Malachi, though it is minor, plays a very vital role in the storyline of God's love for God's people. The book of Malachi would be the last words that God utters through a prophet for not one, not two, not three, but 400 years. And the words that are echoed, listen, the words that are echoed through Malachi to God's people would be the words that the Israelites would have resonating in their hearts and in their minds for centuries, all the way up until the New Testament unfolds and Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, 170 years before the book of Malachi takes place, the people of Israel found themselves in captivity. Sound familiar? Right? That seems to be the story of the people of Israel. Freed from slavery, like living a life, like, man, God is awesome. He's done some great things for us. And then they end up again in captivity. But this time their captivity is not under the Egyptians, it's under the Babylonians. And to be in Babylonian captivity was not a pretty thing. They were in captivity for 70 years. For some of you, that would be all you ever known throughout your entire life. You had these promises of God over you, yet you can't see them realized because your people before you and even the people around you have lived a rebellious life. And the rebellion, their sin has brought them, 170 years prior to this, it brought them to this place. But God had promised that he would not leave his people exiled forever. He would not leave them in this place. It would only be temporary. And God had once again proven to his people that he is a promise maker and that he is a promise keeper. I want you to say that right now where you're at. God is a promise maker, say it. And God is a promise keeper. 
We serve a God that never changes, even when we do. Now, when the people experienced the promise of God fulfilled and they're freed again from Babylonian captivity, when they're freed from that, you can read in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra the account of what happens. The people have experienced the hand of God freeing them from something. Have you ever experienced God at work in your life? Have you ever seen God do something that you never thought he would do, yet you knew he could do it because he said he would do it, and then he does it, and then your heart explodes? When you read the account of what happens to God's people in the book of Nehemiah, what you see is that national reform takes place. Personal repentance takes place. They are sweeping the nation. They are changing their habits. They're establishing new laws. It's like, it's like everything about their life personally and everything about the people nationally changes. Think of it like, um, think of it like a, a student that goes to student camp for a week, right? And they experience Jesus on the mountaintop and they're like, God is an awesome God, he reigns. Like my whole life is gonna change, it's awesome. I love Jesus, woo, yeah, I'm gonna serve you my whole entire life. I'm gonna come in here. God, you're gonna wreck my world. You're gonna change my school. And then two weeks later, what happens? You're literally right back to where you started from. You know why? That's the storyline of people that have not really been freed. That's exactly what is taking place now when Malachi shows up. 100 years post-captivity, God's people promise to do all of these things. God, you're incredible. God, you've done all these things for us. We will never forget you. We will never turn from you. You are our redeemer. Yet now when you show up to Malachi, there's some indictments being made against God's people because they had forgotten the goodness of God towards them. The book of Malachi basically sets up like a courtroom, okay? It sets up like a courtroom and God makes some charges against his people. Now, here's something really important about this, okay? The charges that are made against God's people from God through Malachi to the Israelites, the charges that are being made to them, listen, are, are really key. The reason is because their outward appearance had not changed. They had continued to do the same thing that they had promised to do a century earlier. They were still very, very fervent in their religious activity, but the affection of their heart had hardened. Sound familiar? You go through the motions of being a follower of Jesus, yet there's something in your heart that's still dead. The reason the indictments that God makes against the people of Israel in Malachi are here is not because they weren't active on the outside, it's because they were dead on the inside. Their outward posture had not changed, but their inward posture had. Side note, I've heard that many theologians have actually tracked it all the way back that this is the period of time where the Pharisees were born out of. You know, the ones that Jesus came and preached against, the ones that were very fervent in religious activity, the ones that thought that they did X, Y, and Z, they would have the favor and approval of God. And God, uh, Jesus shows up on the scene and says, no, that's not it. It's not external change that I'm looking for. It's internal change. And when the heart changes, the feet move. That's, that's what happens right here, okay? And that's where we are today in the book 
of Malachi. So today I'm going to give you three charges. There's more charges than that, but I'm going to sum them up in three. Three charges that God makes against his people. There's a cause for the charge, and then there's a cure. You guys ready to roll? Great. Here we go. Charge number one. The Israelites gave God the leftovers. The Israelites gave God the leftovers. Now, when you guys, some of y'all in here, you hear the, the phrase leftovers and you're like, yo, that's good. Because y'all are like the gross human beings that go to a restaurant and order salmon or shrimp and you take it home in a box and a week and a half later, it's still there and you think I should reheat that. <laughs> the only thing on planet earth worth reheating for leftovers, in my opinion, is meatloaf and Italian food. Italian food is always better reheated. Can I get an amen, somebody, okay? Always, never fails, okay? Um, God makes an indictment against the people and he says that their worship was half-hearted, stale. You're giving me the leftovers. You're not giving me the best. Look in Malachi chapter one, verses six, through eight. It will be right here for you. This is, what, this is what he says. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? That's a pretty harsh statement, isn't it? If I am a father, do you hear the tenderness in that, by the way? I'm not a far off God. I have lovingly showed you the way every step along the journey. If I am a father, if, if I am a father, where is the honor due me? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. It wasn't just the people, it was the pastors. Y'all listen, this problem wasn't just rampant out there, it was rampant in here. They had been tasked with one thing, to bring honor and glory and worship to the Lord by giving their best. And what did they do? They failed to live up to that expectation. But then they asked, they're like, God's like, hey, listen, you failed to give honor and glory to my name. I love this. They're like, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Sounds like I'm talking to a 12 year old, right? How have I shown contempt for your name? Next slide. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Does this sound like this is a ridiculous conversation, isn't it? This is what happens over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Malachi. God constantly tries to show them where they have gone astray and the people argue back. What do you mean, God? What do you mean, God? And God's like, all right, let me show you. Here we go. How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible? Verse eight. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animal, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. The governor won't even take it. The, the governor won't even accept the offerings that you are bringing to me literally right here before the Lord. Would he even accept you? Yo, listen, they were called to bring the unblemished sacrifice to the altar. Does that sound familiar by the way? A foretaste of the one who would be slain on our behalf, the perfect lamb who would be laid on the altar, the one who would be sacrificed once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. His name is Jesus. Yet they did not bring the purest one. They brought the one that was defiled, the one that had a crippled leg, the one that they thought, oh, we'll keep the best for us. We'll give God from the margins over here instead of from the best in here. 
Now, before we go pointing the finger at the Israelites, we do that a lot, don't we? I know that I do. And he makes, the, he, makes the, he makes the accusation to them, not even just with their sacrifice, but he even goes into their money. There's an indictment on them about their, their finances, the way that they tithe. They've neglected the tithe. Y'all listen. Now, when you start, you start thinking about your life and the margins, we give God from the leftovers. We don't give God our best. Think about your day. When was the last time that you sat down before the Lord and gave him the first and best of your day? If you're anything like me, sometimes you get in such a rush that you start going about your day in such a way that you're like, I haven't even spent time with the Lord today. Oh, maybe I'll do it when I drive from here to there. That's giving God the leftover and not giving God the best. Number two, they exalted themselves in their marriages. God makes an accusation about them that they had put their flesh at the forefront of their marriages and not honoring God through them. Now, when you go to Malachi chapter two, verses 10 through 11, you can read it right here. It says this, do we not all have one father? There's this idea that marriage, marriage gives you this beautiful picture of the oneness that God has with his people. And it's also a oneness that God has between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, there's a oneness that's there. And there's an indictment made by God. It says they have elevated themselves in their marriages and it, it really comes down to breaking the oneness. Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. Why is this important? Why did God create the covenant of marriage? To fill the earth with more God-fearers. To fill the earth with more God worshipers. If you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, what you see, God gives Adam, God gives Eve, and they come together and they are tasked with filling the earth with more God worshipers. That was the desire, that was the framework for the family unit to be built. How, listen, how does the affections of God change in your heart when you no longer have someone side by side with you who believes the same thing that you do? That's an uphill battle, is it not? That is, an, that is a strong indictment on the people. You have left your God-fearing wives, he says to the men, and you have gone and you have married pagan women who are worshiping pagan gods. Side note, side note, okay, I have heard way too many Christians, all right, I'm about to get, I'm about to get a little on your toes here, okay? I have heard way too many Christians use the book of Malachi as a facade for their sin of racism. And they say that uh, someone from a different race should marry someone else from a different race. This has nothing to do about interracial marriage. It's got everything to do with the affections of your heart being driven by your flesh and unequally yoking yourself with someone who worships another God. How can you fulfill what God desired for the family unit when you have hitched yourself to someone else that doesn't even believe the same thing? And that's important because your flesh will drive you. You fall for the facade of beauty and you run away from what God had given you from the start. Look at Malachi chapter two, verse 15. This is what he said. 
He said, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? That's a great question to ask, right? What does the one God seek? He seeks godly offsprings. That you would raise children that would love God with every facet of their being. That you would raise up and you would populate the world with more God-fearers. This is why we do global missions. This is why we go here. The Great Commission is in your home. The Great Commission is right down your hallway, parents. You probably have like the largest unreached people group living right down your hall. Yet you turn and walk away from it, says the Lord, and you chase after the desires of your flesh. Number three, they second guess God's love for them. Now, I'm getting ready to go back to Malachi chapter one. I realize that's a little bit backwards here, okay? But this really is the summation of their charge against God and God's charge against them. Okay, Malachi chapter one, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the beginning of the book. This whole book is wrapped up in the love of God. The love of God towards his people. The love of God that never changes, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, forever love. I have loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? Did you hear that? They say, yeah, show us, prove it. God, how? How have you shown your love to us? Are you kidding me? God's like, hey, let's go for a walk. Where are we going? I'm going to take you to the woodshed. That's where we're going. You want to talk about my love? Let me just recount all of the ways. Let, let me just recount it from your, our people all the way back to the very beginning. Freed from the mighty hand of Pharaoh. Y'all remember that? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Y'all remember that? BBS? Okay, all right, there we go. Freed from the mighty hand of Pharaoh, I led you with a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar, of, a pillar of fire by night. I crossed over, you crossed over on dry land, not just one time, but multiple times. I made the sun stand still so you could finish off the army. I defeated nations on your behalf when there never seemed to be a way. I preserved the life of David when he had Saul acting like a rabid teenager trying to take your life because I'd removed my hand from him and put him on the other king. Even in their discipline, he was faithful to do what he promised to do. He had just brought them out of Babylonian captivity. He, they, he rebuilt the temple. A national revival takes place. You've experienced my hand, yet you still doubt my love? You still doubt my love? How? How can a people who had experienced the goodness, the grace, the mercy, and the love of God still miss it? Church, how are we missing the love of God towards us today? How? I mean, if, if I could be honest, the, the thing that we need to go back to every single day when you doubt the love is the cross of Christ. God's love for us displayed that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we forget the love of God when we have the cross erected right in front of us every single day to remind us of the never stopping love of God? The reason that the people of Israel had this place, found themselves in this place is because they forgot the promises of God towards them. They forgot the, pro they forgot the promises of God. 
Instead of giving the first and their best, they offered the leftovers. Instead of believing that God knew what was best by not intermarrying with someone who didn't love him, they decided to follow their flesh and go that way anyway. Instead of trusting that God was a God of justice and that he would take care of what was going out there, going on out there, they turned inward and said, where are you, God? I mean, the thesis of the book can be summarized in Malachi chapter three, verse seven. Look right here, Malachi chapter three, verse seven. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Since the days of your fathers, you have wandered away from my promises. Constantly, day in and day out, you forget. We're a forgetful people, are we not? I'm a forgetful man. This past week was a, was a really tough week. I needed to be reminded of this today. Where am I forgetting the promises of God towards me? See, what happens is when you neglect the promises of God, sin starts to deaden the heart. I heard one pastor say it this way, where sin heats up, love of God grows cold. There is sin simmering in your heart today and the cure for that sin to be simmered down and to be literally just pruned off of you is to cling to the goodness of God and say, God, my flesh wants that, but I'm clinging to what you want for me right here. Like what were, the, what were the promises that God made to the people of Israel? Well, let's just go back. The covenant that he made with Abraham, literally the very essence, the DNA of their being, that they would become great and become a blessing to the nations. Yet what do you find in Malachi? They're outwardly looking at the nation saying, why, why is God blessing them and not us? They had taken their eyes off of what God had promised to them that they would have the blessing of God over them and that they would be a blessing to the world. They've forgotten that God made a covenant with Moses that Israel would be God's treasured possessions if they would keep his commands. And now their hearts are running away from God and guess what happens? They're forgetting the promises of God towards them and they're looking outward instead of inward. Guess who never changed? Again, guess who never changed in this season? Malachi chapter three, verse six, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. God is a gracious and patient and loving God. Even in our rebellion, he says, my promise stands true. My promise is still running hard after you. The key is to return, <laughs> to remember you know, church, the, the key here is to remember the promises of God. That's the cure. The cure for a rebellious heart, the cure for a forgetful people is to remember. It could it be that easy? It's where it starts. To cling to, to hold fast to, to remember day in and day out. Listen to the promise that he makes in Malachi chapter four, verse one and two. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming and it will set them on fire. Not a root or a branch will be left for them. You guys, that is the justice of God being carried out to its fullness. Sin has to be dealt with in our lives and it will be dealt with. 
Look at the next part of this verse, though. He says, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You know, the sun, the actual sun, not like the sun, Jesus. The sun is a fireball. It burns, it consumes everything it touches, yet it is also something that brings about life. He says, for those of us that are not covered in Christ, your sin will be consumed upon your shoulders in eternity. But for those of us that are in Christ, praise God, that is the promise that he's pointing to, to the New Testament, the one who would come, the wrath of God will be dealt with on his back and not ours. That Jesus would, he would absorb every ounce of the wrath of God on his back so that you don't have to in eternity. My pastor um, that I, from the church I just came from, his name is JD. He used to describe it like this all the time. And I, this visual is huge for me. He used, to, he used to say, imagine standing at the foot of the Hoover Dam and you're looking up and you're like, wow, that is a huge wall protecting me from all that water. And then all of a sudden a crack comes in that wall and boom, the whole thing falls down and every ounce of water is coming straight towards you. And you're thinking what? I'm, I'm toast. I got nowhere to go. And then at the very last minute, the ground opens up right in front of you and every ounce of that water is absorbed fully into the earth. Not a drop touches you. That's what God did on the cross with his son, Jesus. Every ounce of the wrath of God was fully satisfied on the back of Jesus. That is the promise. Cling to it. Cling to it. Remember the promises of God. Where is your heart growing weary and dead? It's probably because you have forgotten the promise of God towards you today. So here's what we're gonna do, church. I already know that you can clap. I already know that you can speak. I've seen you do it in here over the last few minutes and online. I know you guys are typing little comments in the comment section. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna practice rehearsing, having our hearts stirred with the affections of God. I'm gonna read promises of God over you. And if it sits with your heart today, shout amen. If it sits with you today, you can clap. You can respond to the goodness of God. If your heart is growing weary and tired and needs to be awoken, needs to come alive with the glorious truths of the promises of God. You want to run from a, from a rebellious life? Cling to the beautiful promises that are before you in Christ. So you guys ready? You ready? All right, we're gonna do it. Here we go. This is how we're ending today, okay? John chapter one, verse 12. Although I may have been orphaned, God now calls me his child. John 15, 15. I was once an enemy of the cross, but Jesus now calls me friend. You feel like he doesn't care about you? Oh, you were once a rebel, but now you are a son and a daughter. Romans chapter five, verse one. I was once at war and I was at odd with God, but I now have peace and justification through Christ. First Corinthians chapter six, Verse 19 and 20, you were so loved and so cherished that he purchased you with a price, that the good shepherd would come to you when you were the sheep off. Hebrews chapter four, 14 through 16, alienation from God was your anthem, but now you have direct access through the throne rooms of God, through the cross of Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse one and two, condemnation is no longer upon you. Freedom is your song. You are no longer condemned. You are in Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse 28. Did you know that God is working all things together for your good? Not some things, not a few things, all things together for your good. Philippians chapter one, verse six, God has started a work in you and guess what? He ain't done. 
He's gonna see it through to completion. You may not see it. You may be on the backside of that tapestry, but He's writing a story and He will do it even when you feel like you don't have the strength to. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. Your citizenship used to be an alien off in the far country, but now you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You have a new DNA. You have a new king. You have a new priest. 2 Timothy chapter one, verse seven. Fear is no longer your MO. You no longer operate out of fear. You operate out of power that's been given to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Quit walking around with one foot in the grave and walk with the power that He came out of it. You can walk in that power every single day. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, you feel worthless? No, 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 no. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work. He has crafted you. He has made you to do the very thing that He has called you to do it. And He will equip you to do it and He will carry it out, church. He's gonna do it. You're feeling overwhelmed? Revelation says, hey, look, you got pain today. You're going through some stuff today, but you know what? One day, every tear will be wiped away from your eye. It's all gonna be made new. That church is the promises of God. So what do you do? What do you do when you hear those truths? Lift your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. Lift your hands, clap your hands in the sanctuary. He is worthy of it. Are you feeling, is your heart feeling dead today? Cling to the promises of God over you. May it not be true of the people of Biltmore Church what is true of the people of Israel that we would not forget the goodness of our God, but that we would cling to it daily through His promises. God, you're good, your goodness towards us. You run after us daily, even when we can't see it. Thank you, Father, for the cross. Thank you, Father, for your promises. Thank you that all your promises are yes and amen through Christ Jesus. God, I pray that we would be a, a people that know when sin is trying to deaden our hearts and we would say, not today, Satan. Not today, we're gonna to cling to the goodness of God that's found through the cross of Christ. And we would remember, we would preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We love you, in Jesus' name.